everybody. Welcome back to the Abnormal Psychologist podcast. This is Dr. Colby Taylor, the host of the podcast. Um, I'm a psychologist in the state of Tennessee and also an associate professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University in Memphis. And before I get started on today's episode, um, I wanted to say thank you to everybody that's been listening to the podcast. Uh, at last check, we were at over 400,000 listeners, which is crazy, or listens. I don't know that they're individual listeners, but 400,000 is still a crazy number. And I never imagined when I started this podcast two and a half, three years ago, that we'd have that many listeners. So really awesome. And it's one of the reasons I'm happy to keep this thing going. Okay, so today's episode. This semester, I'm teaching a class on autism spectrum disorders, and it's an undergrad course, and it's kind of cool because we want to get stuff outside of the classroom, so it's not just me talking at students, lecturing. Um, it's actually got a community-engaged learning, sort of a service learning component, um, so that we can do some experiential stuff. And in talking about autism um, to my undergrads, I was thinking I could probably do two or three episodes related to autism that viewers or listeners, I say viewers, but y'all aren't viewing anything, I don't think, except your smartphone screens or whatever, uh, but that listeners might appreciate. Um, and, you know, I, this also sort of relates to common questions I get in my clinical practice, because one of my specialties is autism spectrum disorder. And oftentimes, families and students will ask me, what causes autism? What is the cause of autism? And that's a really great question. It's a really tricky question. In my clinic, we have this phrase, and I don't know if it exists in other clinics, but if you see one child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. Uh, autism presents in such a diverse way. There's such heterogeneity of presentation, right? Um, and it wouldn't surprise me, you know, in 2014, 2013, when the DSM-5 uh, came out, right, we did away with uh, RET disorder, uh, childhood disintegrative disorder, pervasive de developmental disorder not otherwise specified, right? And we collapse these all, Asperger syndrome, into um, one umbrella diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. And it wouldn't surprise me in the future if we sort of went in the opposite direction as we learn more about genetics and causes related to autism, um, that we actually have a dozen or so different disorders that we've collectively called autism. So it wouldn't surprise me if we blew it apart again. And because autism presents with such um, heterogeneity, it should be no surprise that the causes of autism are very heterogeneous, heterogeneous, heterogeneous. I've heard it pronounced both ways, right? Like uh, some of my science majors, when they're talking about chemistry or something and a mixture in chemistry, they say like a heterogeneous mixture. But then outside of sciences, it seems like people say heterogeneous. I'm curious what listeners have to say about the, the correct pronunciation of heterogeneous or heterogeneous. But anyways, the causes of autism are diverse. Um, in fact, one of the autism textbooks I use is by Jill Boucher. And uh, Jill Boucher says the causes of autism are complex, cumulative, they build on one another, and interactive. Uh, I'm always really skeptical when I see a news story that says that they found the cause of autism or a cause of autism or the gene that causes autism because autism doesn't work like that. Um, autism has so many causes. In fact, when we're talking about autism, we do a lot better in talking about risk factors than we do actual causes. Uh, most cases of autism are what we call idiopathic. Uh, that medical term idiopathic means that a condition, a disease, a disorder appears for an unknown reason. 
There's no smoking gun reason for why that disorder or disease popped up. And we think that 85 to 90% of autism cases are idiopathic. Um, the 10 or 15% where we know the cause, it's usually some sort of chromosomal abnormality. Um, there's uh, uh, trisomy 21, Down syndrome, something that contributes to autism. Um, uh, Rett syndrome uh, in, in females. Um, but most cases, a vast majority of cases, we don't know what caused it. It's idiopathic. So again, we're a lot better at talking about risk factors. And I thought in today's episode, um, I'd cover some questions that I commonly get from students and from families in my practice. Um, one is, are maternal and paternal age associated with autism? We'll cover that. Uh, is high fructose corn syrup associated with autism? I've gotten that one recently. Um, are people who are conceived in the winter at greater risks of autism? That's an interesting question. I'm recording this in February, so it's the winter. Um, are early childhood fevers associated with autism? It's an interesting question too. Um, and then one I got recently is, are migrant children coming into the United States at greater risk of autism? So in this episode, in the next 20, 25 minutes, I'm going to try to cover all five of those questions, as well as some other stuff. Um, let's get into neurobiological causes at first. So neurobiological causes, you know, we're looking at brain chemistry, brain structure, brain function. And there's not a, an MRI or a functional MRI um, or any sort of brain scan that you can do that will give you a very reliable and valid um, diagnosis of autism. Be highly skeptical if you can get an MRI and uh, they look and say, you have autism. Like they can do that maybe with something like Alzheimer's. Can't do it with autism. Um, because autism, again, is characterized by highly heterogeneous phenotypes and genotypes. Phenotypes being the expression of the genotype um, uh, genetics, right? Um, we do have what's really interesting with autism, something called the broad autism phenotype. You'll see it abbreviated BAP. And this is where people display subdiagnostic um, uh, symptoms of autism. So they don't quite meet diagnostic criteria for autism, um, but there is something a little bit autism-y about them. And if you're thinking about autism existing on a spectrum, everybody's somewhere on the spectrum. We had to draw a line somewhere on the spectrum, and these people are just on the other side of the lot. Right? They have some social behavioral displays of autism, but it wasn't enough to get them the diagnosis. And genetically, what we find oftentimes is that most people with autism have at least one parent and sometimes two parents. Um, and I've seen estimates that uh, people with autism, like 60 to 70%, have a parent with the broad autism phenotype. Um, maybe not reaching diagnostic criteria themselves, uh, but having a little bit of autism, autismish symptoms, autismish. I don't think that's an adjective, but it works there. And I see that um, time and time again in my own practice. Um, what's fascinating genetically is occasionally we'll have multiplex families. Multiplex families are where more than one family member displays autism or the broad autism phenotype. And heritability estimates of autism are all over the place. Um, some people say that it's highly, highly genetic. I've seen research saying it's 90% genetic. I've also seen research that says it's only about 35 to 38% genetic. So anywhere between 38% genetic and 90% genetic, which is a crazy wide range. Uh, we know genes are involved in autism. Uh, the question is to what extent, I guess. Um, so multiplex families are fascinating to study because um, I've seen cases of 
two or three family members, two or three siblings that all have autism. And obviously they make uh, really good candidates for genetic research to see why you might have three siblings that all carry the autism diagnosis. Um, again, when I see a news story that says that they found the gene for autism, I'm very, very skeptical because autism doesn't work like that. Autism is polygenic in nature. It's not monogenic. Monogenic would be like one gene that's causing autism. It's not like that. It's polygenic in nature. Uh, it's a combination of genes that lead to autism. And there are probably a hundred candidate genes that we look at when we look at autism. And what's interesting is uh, out of you know these hundred some odd candidate genes that might lead to autism, some of these genes also lead to other psychopathologies. Um, we call that being pleiotropic, where the same gene can sort of express itself in different ways and go off in different directions. So maybe you had a parent that had an anxiety disorder diagnosis, and that same gene that led to anxiety in your parents can express itself in autism in you and maybe in anxiety and depression in a sibling. It's pleiotropic. It can sort of morph and go in different directions. And there are some genes that might lead to autism that also contribute to schizophrenia, uh, dyslexia, ADHD, speech and language impairments. So there is sort of overlap. They're all, a lot of these candidate genes are playing in the same genetic playground, if you will, with other psychopathologies. I was supposed to be talking about neurobiological causes, and I realized I just started talking about genetics. So neurobiologically, a lot of people want to look at um, the autistic brain. And there's been a lot of research that's looked at the autistic brain. And again, there's not a smoking gun neural imaging technique that can tell you definitively that you have autism. Um, a lot of the research on the autistic brain, which I hate saying that, but you see it pop up in literature time and time again, is um, that there are differences in brain connectivity. Um, and with brain connectivity and autism, we have areas of both hyper-connectivity, um, and this hyper-connectivity might lead to like high ability, splinter skills, if you will, savant syndrome, um, where you might be really, really good at a very narrow task, like a visual-spatial task or something like that. So we have hyper-connectivity in some areas. The hyperconnectivity could be related to like sensory processing too. And this might be why we get some hypersensitivity in people on the autism spectrum. Um, we also have hypoconnectivity maybe in certain brain regions. And this hypoconnectivity could lead to deficits, um, like deficits in uh, social emotional uh, identification, understanding, um, deficits maybe in expressive communication. Um, so there's been a lot of research on differences in connectivity. Uh, we've also found increased cortical thickness in people with autism spectrum disorder and increased cortical surface area. Um, so there is a hypothesis with autism that we have overdevelopment of the brain, um, maybe in the womb and at an early age. And this is sort of supported by, um, some very young children with autism having um, broader head circumference. So their head circumference is um, uh, charting ahead of where it should be. So we have maybe brain overdevelopment, cortical overdevelopment, which could lead you to being in the 90th percentile or so with um, uh, head circumference. And then what we find after two or three years is that these kids get back on the curve for a head circumference and might fall back into the average range. And so maybe there's something going on early in life 
that's leading to this increased cortical thickness, increased surface area, especially in infancy and toddlerhood, and might even persist into adulthood with some of these research studies I've seen. Um, and this, this sort of uh, cortical overdevelopment might be happening and might be leading to autism. Um, we've also seen differences in gerification or differences in folding in people with autism, which is really interesting. Um, all right, continuing on with neurobiology, uh, we found differences in mini columns. So mini columns are these little stacks of gray and white matter that sort of in a computer sense would serve as microprocessors. Oftentimes we compare the brain to the computer. Um, I remember as an undergrad in cognitive psychology, we talked about CRUM, which is the Computer Representational Understanding of the Mind, CRUM, I think. And so these mini, mini columns in the brain, these little bitty stacks of gray and white matter, you can see on um, uh, stained imaging techniques. Um, I don't know if they stain some cross-section of the brain or something. I have no idea how it works. Um, but I, not being a neuroscientist, I can look at these stains and can see differences uh, between some people with autism and some people without autism. And we think that these mini columns are really important in facilitating communication in the cortex. And in people with autism, if you're looking at sort of these stained images, you'll see way more mini columns in people with autism. A um, lot denser, um, but they're almost speck-like. They're a lot smaller, but more numerous in people with autism than people off the spectrum. People off the spectrum um, tend to have larger, but less mini columns. So maybe there's something going on with mini columns. And there's some hypotheses with mini columns, these microprocessors, that maybe this leads to enhanced attention to detail and maybe enhanced spatial awareness in people on the spectrum and might also lead to like poor self-care. So again, we're seeing sort of hyper-connectivity and hypo-connectivity in play with um, microprocessors or mini columns. Neuroanatomically, um, there's also been some studies involving the corpus callosum and sort of that fibrous X-shaped mass uh, between the two hemispheres in the brain. Um, Kim Peek, uh, that um, the Rain Man was uh, sort of loosely based off of, Kim Peek was a real person, he had corpus callosum agenesis. So he was born without a corpus callosum. And maybe some people with autism don't have a corpus callosum. I think that would be probably really rare. And what we find more frequently uh, neuroanatomically in people with autism is they actually have more thick fibrous corpus callosi, would I guess be the plural of corpus callosum, uh, but they have thicker corpus callosums. Let's transition to neurobiology, brain chemistry. Um, people are often asked, what is the neurotransmitter that's involved in autism, right? Because we have neurotransmitter hypotheses throughout psychopathology. Dopamine hypothesis with schizophrenia, um, serotonin hypothesis with uh, depression, and these are imperfect hypotheses, right? Uh, but wouldn't it be nice if, like, you can take an SSRI for depression, uh, there was some sort of uh, smoking gun, I keep saying smoking gun for some reason, I don't know why I'm using that uh, metaphor today, but wouldn't it be great if there was some identifiable neurotransmitter that we could take medication for for autism? And results, the reason that you don't have like an FDA prescribed recommended medication for autism is that results aren't really clear how or if neurotransmitters contribute to autism. Uh, we do think that neurotransmitters definitely influence certain symptoms. So just like I said that autism is genetically diffuse, 
It's also probably neurobiologically diffuse. Um, serotonin, GABA, dopamine all probably play roles, especially in influencing certain symptoms of autism. Uh, but we don't have a really good grasp of what's going on neurobiologically with autism. Some people will claim that one of the biggest risk factors of autism is having a Y chromosome, is being male. And so one possible cause of autism is called extreme male brain theory. Um, and extreme male brain theory posits that males are more genetically vulnerable to autism than females. Uh, maybe it's having testosterone. Maybe it's the mother's body attacking testosterone in the womb. Um, there's different hypotheses on extreme male brain theory. Um, but maybe males are just, um, you know, better at spatial tasks and mathematical systems than females, uh, but worse at things like empathy, language, and socialization. And in people with autism and males with autism, um, this sort of gender difference or sex difference is just exaggerated. It gets extreme. Um, one of the proponents of extreme male brain theory is Simon Baron Cohen. Uh, he's a he's a British psychiatrist, and Simon Baron Cohen is actually a cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen of, of Borat fame, fame, right? And that's super interesting, very nice, right? Um, but yeah, so you'll see Baron Cohen cited a lot if you get into the autism literature. Um, so there's been a lot of research on like fetal testosterone exposure, that sort of thing related to extreme male brain theory. All right, so one question I've gotten a lot recently is, does acetaminophen, does Tylenol um, cause autism? And Tylenol has traditionally been something that's sort of been one of the few safe things that pregnant women can take. Um, and there's been research within the last three years. There was a 2019 study and also a 2021 study, both large scale studies. I think one was a meta-analysis um, that have shown that acetaminophen is a risk factor for autism. Um, acetaminophen tends to bring about about a 20% higher risk of autism when taken prenatally than people that don't take acetaminophen. And what's sort of interesting is it brings about a 30% or so higher risk of ADHD. Um, this research is still really ongoing. I think it's probably too early to definitively say that acetaminophen um, causes autism or contributes to autism. But these two studies have definitely started to raise eyebrows as to whether acetaminophen is safe to take during pregnancy. I think there's already some class action lawsuits that are out there um, suing makers of Tylenol and whatever. Um, if your child is born with autism, I don't know how successful they are. Um, and I don't know yet if ACOG, the American um, Academy uh, or American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has changed their recommendation um, as far as taking acetaminophen, but um, something that will be interesting to follow in the next few years. I don't think I've answered a single one of those five questions I asked at the beginning of the episode. So let's, let's dive into those. Are maternal and paternal age associated with autism? Uh, yes, they are. Um, uh, and we talk in terms of risk ratio. For maternal age, for mothers 40 plus, the risk ratio for autism is 1.11. This means if your mother is over the age of 40, you have a 1.11 times greater risk of autism than if your mother is under the age of 40. And we also have paternal risk ratio of 1.66, but this is for fathers 50 plus. So if you notice for mothers, it was 40 plus. Um, for fathers, it was a greater risk ratio, but um, the, the research for fathers is mostly like 50 plus. So sometimes I'll be asked by parents, 
is it a greater risk for mother, like advanced maternal age, or a greater risk having advanced paternal age? And it's sort of an apples to oranges comparison sometimes the way that uh, literature lays this out. Also relating to parents, um, we have a disturbing history involving an Austrian-American psychiatrist by the name of Bruno Bettelheim. Uh, Bettelheim in the 1960s and 70s propagated this false notion that refrigerator mothers cause autism. A refrigerator mother was a cold, uncaring mother. He said autism was caused by cold, uncaring mothers. And I don't know if I've mentioned this in a previous podcast, but one of the reasons I'm so passionate about autism is that I have an uncle with autism. He was born in the 1950s, and at the time, the refrigerator mother hypothesis had sort of taken hold. And my soon-to-be 102-year-old grandma had to deal with the stigma of being told that her child has autism because basically she was cold and uncaring. This refrigerator mother hypothesis sort of fell out of favor in the 1980s, uh, maybe late 70s. Uh, one of the people who bucked against Bruno Bettelheim was Bernard Rimlin, who's an American psychologist, passed away about 15 years ago. And what he termed infantile autism, he said, was not caused by being a refrigerator mother. Um, unfortunately, one of the things he did think autism was caused by, and he was erroneous, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, um, was he thought that uh, vaccines cause autism. Um, so even though he took away sort of the refrigerator hypothesis, his replacement hypothesis wasn't much better. And we'll get to that in a second. We'll get to the whole vaccine thing. Um, keeping on with like parenthood, um, we have some perinatal around birth risk factors. Um, preterm delivery is a risk factor for autism. Being low birth weight um, is a risk factor. Abnormal fetal presentation can be a, a, a risk factor. Umbilical cord complications, birth injury, birth trauma. So you like use of forceps, use of vacuum extraction. Um, any sort of fetal distress can lead to or be a risk factor for autism, um, like birth asphyxia, something like that. Uh, there is slightly higher risk of autism if you've had a C-section. So babies that are born through cesarean section have a little bit higher risk of autism. Uh, also, neonatal jaundice is loosely associated with autism. Uh, neonatal jaundice can be variously caused. It can be caused by several different conditions. Um, if labor is prolonged or if there's an otherwise difficult birth, that can lead to autism. And we do know that there are some correlations between low neonatal APGAR scores and autism. So some perinatal risk factors associated with autism, but again, nothing accounting for a majority of cases of autism. Wow, this is going to be a long episode. We're already 23 minutes in, and I've only covered like genetic causes of autism, perinatal factors that might lead into autism. Um, the next sort of subset of causes of autism I want to get into relate to environmental toxicity. And there's so many chemicals in our environment, uh, and very, very few have been studied because it's really hard to study um, ethically, like how chemicals, especially when we're associated with so many, at least to so many covariates, there's some ethical implications, but how chemicals it prenatally or postnatally might lead to certain conditions. Um, we have some that we know are, are very bad um, during pregnancy. One is like valproic acid, exposure to valproic acid. Um, also sodium sulfate medication in pregnancy. Um, valproic acid is commonly prescribed as an anticonvulsant, as a seizure medication, um, but also for like some migraine and psychiatric disorders, migraine um, in women. And we do know 
uh, pretty definitively that exposure to valproic acid during pregnancy, especially during the early months of pregnancy, um, can lead to autism. Um, but there's so many other chemicals that are out there that uh, there's a lot that we just don't know. Um, there have been some findings that show that high fructose corn syrup, uh, which is an ingredient in a lot of things in the Western diet, um, like Coca-Cola, um, that high fructose corn syrup might be associated with a greater risk of autism. Uh, with that being said, some of the methodology of the studies, and this always sort of makes headlines and news if there's a high fructose corn syrup study linked to autism, um, there's so many covariates, it's really hard to definitively say. Again, it's something that's maybe a little bit eyebrow raising, uh, but not something that I would take as gospel truth. Um, again, might be interesting in the next 30 years or so to see if um, high fructose corn syrup, if there's greater links. But right now, I, I don't know. Uh, there's some pretty convincing studies that show that exposure to traffic-related air pollutants might lead to increased risk of autism. Um, if you live near an interstate or highway, especially uh, in an area that has high exposure to diesel fumes, diesel in particular um, seems to maybe be a risk factor for autism. Um, people that live uh, in agricultural areas, exposure to certain like pesticides, uh, maybe organophosphates, organochlorines, those might be linked to autism. Um, so there's some pesticide studies. Don't live near a farm that's being sprayed with pesticides. Don't live near an interstate where you have trucks driving with diesel. Those can maybe lead to autism. Um, maternal infections um, that involve fever, like rubella and flu, might lead to autism. Um, cytomegalovirus, which is a teratogen for other conditions too. Cytomegalovirus might be linked to autism. Um, immune system abnormalities in the mother possibly associated with prenatal infection. But the immune system thing is interesting because there is a compelling line of research that's framing autism as an autoimmune condition, or at least maybe being started as an autoimmune condition. That maybe that early uh, cerebral overgrowth uh, could be in part caused by inflammation and autoinflammation. And um, it might be that um, autism fits as an autoimmune disorder. Um, continuing down the line of sort of environmental toxicity, teratogens, uh, diabetes during pregnancy um, is linked to gestational diabetes or diabetes type 1 or type 2 in the mother. It's linked to autism, obesity, maternal stress. And then along the lines of maternal stress, one of the questions I got from one of my students uh, is, is, are migrants to the United States um, possibly at increased risk of autism? And yes, migrant status uh, and might be associated with increased risk of autism. Um, there's a study by uh, Bolton and colleagues in 2014 um, that found that migrant status is positively linked to autism. And this might be associated with maternal stress. Um, mothers that are migrating into the United States are at greater stress, presumably when they're, when they're pregnant. Um, and then there's also the possibility of vitamin D deficiency um, associated with this, which is interesting. And we do think the vitamin D deficiency during pregnancy um, might lead to autism. Another study by Fresnel and colleagues in 2015 um, looked at vitamin D deficiency and found possible associations with seasons of birth. Um, so there might be something, we find it with schizophrenia, that if you're born in a winter month, um, you might be more likely to have schizophrenia. And there's different theories with autism about either being conceived or born 
in a winter month. Um, and also depending on like what, not what hemisphere you live in, but it would be winter. Anyways, being born in a winter month might be associated with autism. Um, certain antidepressants might be associated with autism. Um, if the mother is taking antidepressants during pregnancy, then again, maternal stress it's a double-edged sword. Untreated depression might lead to autism, but also antidepressant use might lead to autism. Double-edged sword. Um, short interpregnancy intervals. Um, so uh, having siblings not very far apart and uh, multiple births in the womb. So um, uh, twins, triplets are possibly um, risk factors for autism. There's some theories along the lines of um, nutrient depletion with uh, multiple um, fetuses in the womb leading to autism, which are kind of interesting. Uh, pregnancy complications like bre uh, bleeding during pregnancy, um, hypertension, preeclampsia. Um, maybe if the mother has had a history of miscarriage and abortion, there is some evidence that those might be risk factors for autism. So lots of um, prenatal toxicity, teratogen, related risk factors for autism. Um, all right. Wow, this is a lot so far. I think I've listed uh, a ton of different risk factors. Hopefully throughout my podcast series, I've stressed it's not nature versus nurture. It's nature and nurture combined together that lead to any outcome related to development. Um, one intriguing question I was asked this past week is, do you think you can, um, we could like artificially create autism entirely environmentally in somebody with no, presumably no genetic risk? Uh, could we cause autism? And it's an intriguing question because we do know that severe material and social deprivation early in life, extreme social deprivation, like Romanian orphanage social deprivation, um, and if you look at kids that came out of uh, orphanages at the fall of the Soviet Union, a lot of them were engaging in sort of stereotypic behaviors, uh, self-soothing behaviors, rocking back and forth, hand flapping. Um, the, the wild boy of Aveyron, one of the first cases of uh, probable autism spectrum disorder that's really documented in modern literature, even though this was back in the late 1700s. Um, he was essentially a feral child, and a lot of feral children present with symptoms of autism. So I'm wondering, and I, there's no way we could ever ethically research this, um, but it might be possible that severe, prolonged, early social deprivation could create autism, or at least autism-like symptoms in a person. Um, so I wouldn't completely rule out that you could 100% environmentally cause autism. All right, let's get into the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Um, people have thought for decades that there might be a link between the MMR vaccine and uh, autism. And I think this spurious correlation comes from a lot of people get the MMR vaccine right around or right after their first birthday. And we know right around 12 months to 16 months, there's a lot of important developmental milestones that are happening, especially social developmental milestones. And up until that point, up until that point, um, kids might look like they're developmentally progressing at a normal rate. 
And then if they're not saying their first words, if there's some motor delay, walking delay, that sort of thing, um, that's when we start to raise some red flags. Um, there's been some interesting birthday studies that have taken videos or looked at videos of children at their first birthday party and their second birthday party um, and had experts go in and code social um, cues, whether um, you could reliably diagnose or see signs of autism just based on birthday party um, videotapes. Uh, so I think that there's a false correlation between the MMR vaccine you get that right around one year and where parents start to see warning signs of autism. Um, this was not helped by Andrew Wakefield, who published um, his article in The Lancet that was completely off base, had to be retracted, had falsified data, among other problems, um, that sort of explosively claimed that autism and the MMR vaccine are linked together. Um, since that Wakefield study, there have been dozens of studies that show that the MMR vaccine is not statistically significantly related to autism. Probably more than any risk factor or possible cause of autism, the MMR vaccine has been researched more than anything else, and there's just nothing statistically significant there. Um, I would never say with 100% certainty that the MMR vaccine can't cause autism. I think I've seen some research that it is possible for maybe one in a million children, one in a million, the MMR vaccine <clears throat> can lead to regressive autism. Regressive autism is where you develop normally to a certain point, point, and then you actually lose skills you've mastered. So maybe you've learned to talk, you're starting to give phrase speech, and then all of a sudden you lose that ability. And autism, you know, 10, 20 years ago, was thought of mostly as regressive autism, where you've gotten skills and then all of a sudden you lose them. Um, now we know that it's a minority of cases that are actually regressive autism. A lot of parents will think that their children have lost skills because they're progressing pretty well up until their first birthday, and then they just plateau. They sort of flatline for a little bit. And that flatlining, that plateau, can look like a regression, but true, true regression is a little bit rare and certainly not um, indicative of autism 100% of the time, like was what was thought 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. Um, sort of related to the MMR vaccine, I've been told before that the Amish don't get autism. And that's proof that the MMR vaccine causes autism. Okay, so this thing with the Amish. Um, first off, the Amish do get autism. Uh, there are, um, it's strange that people think the, the Amish don't get autism, but there's well-documented cases of autism within the Amish community, and their prevalence rates are probably pretty similar to the non-Amish prevalence rate. So first off, Amish people get autism. Second off, Amish people, most Amish people get the MMR vaccine. So it's doubly wrong, this theory that the, the Amish don't get autism. Um, I don't really know where that came from. Um, sort of along the lines of the, MMR, a lot of people think the MMR vaccine um, causes autism through heavy metals, but heavy metals were largely removed from the MMR vaccine decades ago. So it's not heavy metals um, that would cause that. Heavy metals might cause autism. Um, there could be some link between heavy metal, you know, like, like lead, mercury, and autism. Um, I could do a podcast on treatments, but one very controversial 
pretty unethical treatment for autism involves chelation, which is removing heavy metals from the blood. Um, I would never say that heavy metals don't cause autism because I do think just like everything else, um, there's this cumulative interactive cause to autism among which like heavy metal usage might be part of it. Um, but I don't think that jumping to chelation as a treatment, um, it's definitely not appropriate. I'm probably going to get some hate mail with this episode, uh, cause I know that there's people out there that are chelation advocates. Um, there's so much controversy with anything related to autism. Um, something as simple as, you know, person first language saying, um, you're a person with autism versus a person, uh, an autistic person. You're not going to find consensus within the autism community, um, based on that description. You're not going to find consensus in the autism community based on causes of autism. Um, there is a subsection of people that think the MMR vaccine causes or contributes, um, to autism. There's people that believe in collation uh, and think that that's an effective treatment. Um, there's just so many, you're never going to please anybody when it comes to autism and attending autism conferences. It seems like uh, because of this lack of consensus, there's just so many different factions that have access to grind, you know, pro autism speaks, anti-autism speaks, pro ABA, anti-ABA. Um, there's just so much related to autism that gets controversial. And I think that a lot of times it's really counterproductive. Um, I think there's one question from the beginning that I haven't answered yet. And that question is, um, are early childhood fevers associated with autism? There is a link between viral infections early in childhood uh, and especially viral infections associated with high fever or that lead to encephalitis, um, that these viral infections might cause or contribute to autism. Um, I've had several anecdotal stories, including stories within my family of children that seem to be progressing really well and they get a very high fever viral infection sometime in their first year in life. And there's a noticeable develop change in developmental trajectory after that fever. So I think there is something to the uh, viral infection high fever hypothesis. And there, it's really interesting with autism too, that uh, when we talk about fevers, um, there's some research that, that shows that kids, when kids on the spectrum, when they get fevers, actually might act more um, social um, and have less repetitive behaviors, um, sort of like autism fever syndrome. Uh, but that's kind of the opposite of fevers causing autism. Fevers cause less autistic symptoms. All right, I told you this would be a long episode. We're at almost 40 minutes. Um, like I said, I'm probably going to get some hate mail on this one, but send your comments, send your criticisms to ctayllo 41 at cbu.edu, and um, I'm happy to try to address them. You can also send other episode requests. Just put mailbag in the subject line, and I'll try to get to them. Um, I do have an email in the mailbag right now, and this one says, Hi, Dr. Taylor. Firstly, I want to say thank you for your podcast. I'm an undergrad student from the University of Essex in the United Kingdom. And I absolutely love listening to your show. I, I love that uh, there's people in Australia and people in the United Kingdom that are listening to this. It's awesome that it's sort of uh, international. Um, I was wondering whether you could do an episode dedicated to fangirling or fandoms. Oh, this is fascinating. Uh, this has always interested me. And I'd like to know more about why this happens and why people become obsessed 
with boy bands or Star Wars or Harry Potter, etc. Um, and there's, she says, there's comfort in fixating on certain artists or watching the same shows repeatedly as opposed to new ones. Um, and she says, thanks, uh, Beth. So Beth, I will try to do an episode on uh, fangirling or fandoms. Um, this is a really interesting topic. Uh, I've been asked by my undergrads about this phenomenon before. Uh, it's something, admittedly, I don't know that much about, but I would look forward to doing some research on it and doing an episode in the future on fangirling. Interesting. All right. Well, I think um, we've wasted enough time with this episode. So until the next one, take care and stay well.